Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we discuss cases that involve corruption and negligence from the people that we are expected to trust. These cases range from the police ignoring protocol to corporations placing people's lives in jeopardy in order to maximize profit. Today, I'm drinking a white Russian. How about you, Jenny? I'm drinking a Captain Morgan and ginger ale. Now, this is a very complicated and controversial case that we're getting into today, and I think a lot of people will have differing opinions. So make sure, you know, after you listen to the episode and maybe do some of your own research, you let us know what you think. Otherwise, let's get into the murder of the Raffae family. Around 2 a.m. on July 13th, 1994, Sebastian Burns called 911 to report that his friend, Atif Rafay's parents, Tariq and Sultana, were likely killed and a break-in had occurred at the Rafay family home. Sebastian told the 911 operator that Tariq and Sultana weren't breathing and had blood on their faces and bodies, and that the boys would wait outside for the police to arrive as they felt unsafe in the home. Police and EMTs arrived on the scene to find Tariq and Sultana dead from blunt force trauma, and Basma, Atif's autistic sister, clinging to life after having been attacked in her bedroom. Basma would unfortunately die in the hospital later that day, leaving no witnesses to the brutal crime. The Rafay family had only recently relocated to Bellevue, Washington from Vancouver, Canada, and Sultana insisted that Atif visit. Sultana Rafay had a master's degree in nutrition, but stayed at home to raise her children, and Tariq worked as an engineer. Atif and Sebastian had been best friends since high school. Sebastian had been popular and almost took Atif under his wing. Sebastian enjoyed debating, and Atif was an achiever. Both boys were sarcastic and intellectual, and they often talked about philosophy and books. Atif had recently finished his freshman year at Cornell University. At the time of the murder, Atif and Sebastian were both about to enter their sophomore years of college and were staying with the Rafay family in their home during the school break. Atif and Sebastian cooperated with the Bellevue police and told them that they had gone out to dinner at 8.30 p.m., then to the movies at 9.50, followed by another restaurant and a visit to a club before returning home and walking into the crime scene. They first stumbled upon Sultana Rafay in the living room, who is believed to have been murdered first, and then Tariq Rafay, who was killed second in his bedroom. Atif had noticed that his Walkman and VCR had been stolen as well, and it should be noted that neither of the boys had blood on them and there were no signs of forced entry in the home. To the police, the scene looked staged, and they found it odd that the boys remembered so many details of their night out, but little about their actions after they stumbled on the crime scene. Atif in particular couldn't remember what happened once he was inside the home. Sebastian said that he wasn't thinking normally that night, and it was likely due to the trauma of seeing his best friend's parents' dead bodies. Police also found it strange that the boys were very nonchalant and seemingly ignored Basma, who could be heard moaning in pain. Atif told police that he heard Basma, but he didn't think he could do anything to help her. The boys told 911 that they were going to wait outside due to fear of an intruder, but they sat right in front of the house, waiting for police. Their alibis checked out, however, as their server at the restaurant remembered them for giving her a large tip on a small bill, and the movie theater employee remembered Sebastian's jacket and the boys' obnoxious actions. The boys were put in a motel room by police so they could get sleep, and they were questioned at the police's discretion for three days. The traditional Muslim funeral for Tariq, Sultana, and Basma in Washington was held three days after their murders, but Atif did not attend. Instead, he and Sebastian was on a bus back to Vancouver. Police viewed this action as fleeing, but the police actually gave the boys permission to leave the country, 
after a member of the Canadian consulate contacted them. There was really no reason to not let the boys go as they hadn't been charged with anything. Atif was staying with Sebastian and his family when he saw the funeral airing live on TV. Sebastian's parents said Atif was livid that he wasn't notified of the funeral and that he had not seen him have an outburst like this. However, it is a Muslim tradition that someone be buried three days after their death and the family generally cleanses the body. And Atif should have been aware of this practice after growing up within the Muslim religion. A memorial service was also held in British Columbia months later. Media swarmed the service and caught footage of Sebastian and Atif laughing and running away from them. While the boys were away, police did a luminol test which showed blood on shower walls within the Rafay family home. To police, this evidence meant that the killer was comfortable enough within the house to shower, which led them to further believe that Atif and Sebastian were responsible. To police, the motive was Tariq and Sultana's $300,000 to $400,000 life insurance plan, and they had to kill Basma to ensure that Atif would be the sole recipient. Even without physical evidence, detectives were determined to arrest the boys for the triple murder. They all felt that the boys had an attitude and were arrogant and collected circumstantial evidence against them. While researching, they found that Sebastian had been in a high school play about murder, and that the character that he played had a similar pompous and intellectual superior attitude. The murder weapon within the play was also the assumed murder weapon in the Rafay murder, a baseball bat. Atif and Sebastian's friends and families rallied around the boys, proclaiming their innocence and saying that the police zeroed in on the boys. Sebastian's sister even said, quote, did the cops have to get home for dinner? Why didn't they look into other leads, end quote. After speaking to a lawyer, the boys stopped cooperating with the police. The case garnered tons of media attention, and the boys were ridiculed by the public as they tried to live their lives. Sebastian was unable to return to college or find a job due to the case. In 1995, an undercover police officer did a cold approach on Sebastian as he left the hair salon, claiming he had locked his keys in his car and needed a ride to his hotel. He took Sebastian to a bar as a thank you, when Sebastian told him about a screenplay he had been working on with Atif. The screenplay was for a film called The Great Despisers and revolved around men being falsely accused of murdering a family. Sebastian thought that he was an entrepreneur and mentioned that he needed funding for the film in order for it to become a reality. The undercover cop told him about a man further up the chain that could help him out and Sebastian assumed that this was another businessman. This other man up the chain was Sergeant Hazlitt of the RCMP, who was an experienced and sophisticated undercover officer. The RCMP didn't think traditional methods would work because of Atif and Sebastian's intelligence and set up a Mr. Big scheme where police disguised themselves as members of a criminal organization in order to gain a suspect's trust. This tactic is usually used in cold cases when there is a suspect but little evidence. The Canadian government fought against extradition and argued that they shouldn't be subject to the death penalty since they were Canadian citizens and Canada did not have the death penalty. The boys spent four years in jail awaiting extradition to the U.S. The King County Police Department finally agreed to not seek the death penalty, and at 25, Sebastian and Atif were charged with three counts of aggravated murder and faced life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
Atif was offered a deal if he turned against Sebastian, but he refused. Jimmy was granted immunity in return for testimony against his friends. Teresa Olson was Sebastian's defense attorney, but the trial was quickly brought to a halt after three corrections officers claimed they saw her having sex with Sebastian in jail during a lawyer-client session. She was removed and replaced with attorneys Jeff Robinson and Song Richardson. Both believed in the boys' innocence and took public defender salaries for their work. By 2003, the time the trial began, the boys had been in jail for eight years despite never being convicted of the murders. The defense felt that the police's gut feelings took over from objective reasoning and evidence and pursued individuals rather than the truth. The judge didn't allow the defense to include several pieces of evidence and arguments, including other leads that the police ignored. Prosecutors heavily focused on the boys' characters and confessions. They worked to make the jury hate the boys and painted Atif and Sebastian as cocky teenagers who believed they were smarter than police. The judge even let them use the philosophy books the boys read as evidence to prove that they felt it was okay to kill. Prosecutors brought up a three-minute time frame between the boys' return home and the 911 call. Police believe this is when the break-in described by the boys was staged. The defense countered with statements two neighbors had made to the police of pounding and banging coming from the refrain home between 9.30 and 9.50 p.m., which is when the boys were at the movies. The state argued that there was no proof that the boys stayed at the theater and could have snuck out during the show. They even brought up how at 16, Sebastian had lied about being at the movies as an alibi for a car accident he had caused. Jimmy was forced to come to Seattle from Japan to partake in the trial after prosecutors contacted his job to let them know about his past. He felt he could be fired if he did not participate and even wrote a scathing letter to prosecutors for ruining his family's life. The Canadian authorities originally thought he helped commit the murder, but he originally never implicated himself or his friends. Jimmy was told he would be charged as a conspirator if he didn't implicate his friends. Like we said, Jimmy received immunity for his cooperation with the police, and while on the stand at trial, Jimmy claims he lied to the police about his friend's innocence and that a thief brought up the murder plot during a car ride. At first, they talked about gassing the house and settled on using a bat as it would be quick and painless. He also stated that staying at the Rafay home for five days before the murder was a part of the plan since their DNA would be all over the place, making it near impossible to prove they committed the murders. Both Atif and Sebastian believed Jimmy lied because of pressure from the police. The defense put Jimmy's trustworthiness into question since he admitted to lying. They claimed Jimmy had never said anything like this in the past eight years, so why should he be believed now? Attorney Jeff Robinson even claimed that the morning he took the stand, Jimmy called the defense's office asking what would happen if he served as a witness for the defense. They allege blood splatter evidence showed that there was three potential killers, not two, and found a hair on Tariq's bed that couldn't be matched to anyone. They hoped that this inconclusive evidence would show flaws in the prosecution's case. The defense team felt it was professional liars against teenagers. Sebastian took the stand and showed how scared he was of the undercover officers and that if he had walked away, they would kill him. The undercover officers were recorded on tape saying that they had killed before, but the officers claimed that they were just trying to get Sebastian to feel comfortable and felt that he would talk to them if he thought that they were also killers. On the stand, he said that he knew so many details about the murder 
and the presumed murder weapon because he studied newspaper articles. While Atif did not take the stand, he did later say that when speaking to the undercover officers, the reality of his family's death was out of his mind and he was just telling a story. The jury deliberated for four days and ultimately found Sebastian and Atif guilty of the murders of Basma, Tariq, and Sultana. As the verdict was read, a juror said that she noticed Sebastian glaring at the jury and that scared her. Months later, at the sentencing hearing, Sebastian gave an almost two-hour-long speech, which showed little sympathy for the Rafes. In Atif's statement, he said he felt ashamed of his behavior on the tape and got emotional when speaking about his mom. The judge felt Atif was remorseful, but called Sebastian immoral. Ten years after the murder, they were both sentenced to three counts of life without parole. Part of Sebastian and Atif's sentences was that they would never profit off of any screenplay made about the crime. Since then, both Atif and Sebastian appealed their sentences, and Sebastian even requested to represent himself at one point. He is currently out of appeals. Atif and Sebastian have led different lives in prison. Atif advocates for prison education programs and even got married, while Sebastian has been assaulted by other inmates and has been penalized for fighting and stealing. The most obvious theory in what was proven in court is that Sebastian committed the murder of the Rafays while Atif staged a break-in. This was done in order to get the Rafays insurance policy money, which Atif would share with Sebastian. Next is the claim a reliable police informant made. A Canadian police informant alleged someone had been bragging about receiving $20,000 to kill an East Indian family in Bellevue. Bellevue police admit to not looking into this lead well enough, and unfortunately not much else is known about this potential hitman. Finally is the theories brought up in the Netflix series The Confession Tapes. This is the possibility that Islamic fundamentalist murdered the Rafais. Tariq had moderate religious views and had given speeches on Islam in modern times that offended conservative Muslims. He had also discovered a one to two degree difference in true East, which is the direction Muslims pray in, and suggested people move their prayer mats accordingly. Prosecutors felt that no one would kill over this disagreement. However, the U.S.-based terrorist group that was rumored to be responsible for the Rafay's deaths, Al-Fukra, had attacked other enemies of Islam, and the FBI believed they likely committed a similar unsolved murder of an East Indian family in Washington state in 1984. The family was friends with the president of the same company Tariq Rafay worked for at the time of his murder. An FBI informant claimed they knew an imam, which is a Muslim religious official, that ordered the murder of the Rafais and that the informant knew two men who possibly committed the murders. He claimed one of the men showed him a baseball bat in his car trunk. This account of the bat came months before the police determined through testing that a bat was the most likely murder weapon. The informant gave the Bellevue police lots of information, including names and addresses, on men he believed were involved. The Bellevue police never followed up or questioned anyone related to this lead. Del, what do you think of this case? You know, Jenny, I am so conflicted with this case. I remember when we were talking about Julius Jones, looking through the evidence, I was so sure, like, okay, he is guilty. But when looking at this case, there's so much circumstantial evidence and situations that come up that I'm really not sure what to think. I don't believe that Atif was a willing participant in his family's murder. Sebastian's aura is really unsettling to me 
his narcissism and calm demeanor on the 911 call, it really contributes to this feeling. Even in the confession tape, Sebastian was the one that killed all three of the victims, not a thief, and the prosecutors agreed with that assertion. I honestly think that Atif was scammed by Sebastian and he just wanted so much to be Sebastian's friend. As we talked about, Sebastian was the popular one. He was the one that was in place. He had all the friends and he brought Atif into that world. And I believe that Atif didn't want to leave behind the only true friend he felt that he ever had in his life. He even broke down when he was talking about how much he loved his mom which means he didn't want her to die. One of the people had said that it was the faithful meeting of the two that unfortunately led to the Rafay murders. And I absolutely agree with that assertion. I do not think that the Rafays would be dead right now if Atif hadn't met Sebastian. How about you? I definitely agree. And like when we were researching this case, it did bring me back to the Julius Jones case and a little bit of the Misty Copsy case because it was kind of in the same area. Um, But I've had so many ups and downs with this case too. But I do think Atif and Sebastian are innocent, mainly because of the lack of meaningful evidence that the prosecution and police were able to find and bring up in court. I can't fully say I'm convinced they're innocent, though, but without evidence, I don't really feel right saying that they're guilty. I don't think it's fair to judge them and throw them in jail for having an attitude, and I think that's essentially what happened. Without a doubt, I think they're cocky, and I definitely get this sense that they're better than everyone. I mean, Sebastian is saying he's one of the smartest people in the world. Who says that? That and their behavior doesn't prove that they're killers. It doesn't make them killers. And the confession tapes are so hard to watch, especially since at some points the boys are acting so cold and aloof. But to me, it kind of felt like Sebastian was making things up. This case is so stressful because it depends really on what you watch, right? Um, I picked this case partially because I remember watching a Dateline episode on it, and we're going to link that in the notes. But I remember probably in high school, I saw the Dateline special that was on them. And after watching that, I remember thinking they're definitely guilty. And then a few years ago, when the confession tapes came out, I saw that and I was like, oh my god, they're innocent. So then I rewatched both. And the Dateline episode wasn't as biased toward them being guilty as I remembered. It's a little more fair because they do flat out ask the police, like, did you look into this lead? Did you like they they say that the police didn't really have any evidence that it was all circumstantial it shows the importance of like all sides to the story obviously the confession tapes is done in a way to really make you feel for the boys and i think the person who created it also believes that they're innocent right and i think that you see that a lot of times when it comes to certain documentaries where they have a point of view and they present things that support that i also watch both the confession tapes and dateline and i do feel that the dateline was less biased, which definitely contributed to my feelings that Sebastian committed the murder. So now that we've discussed our individual theories, we're going to break down the evidence that shows why they could have done it and why they didn't do it. I'm going to start off with why I think they're guilty. The first thing is the 911 call. You have their behavior after the crime. You have the motive to get the insurance money. 
them wanting to promote their screenplay, the coincidences that exist between Sebastian's old car crash and the high school play. If you look at the crime scene, there's possible staging and you do have their confessions that were taped. Like I did say, I do believe that they're innocent. And the biggest reason for that to me is because of the lack of forensic or physical evidence pointing to them. The boys do have tight alibis. The statements that the neighbors gave to police back up these alibis. And that again is hearing the thumping and loud noises coming from the Rafay family home between 9.30 and 9.50 that night. The detectives also didn't search into other leads. There were no claims of Atif being upset with his family. There's possible manipulation and intimidation by police and the Mr. Big tactic. And with that is possible criminal braggadocio that some experts believe Sebastian showed this boasting of his crimes to feel more secure with Mr. Big and to impress them. The odd behavior that Sebastian and Atif displayed after the Rafay's deaths could be explained away as just how teenagers can react to trauma. We say this all the time, but there's no one exact way to show trauma to um, to grieve someone. And finally is the inconsistencies in the confessions. The boys gave consistent statements to the police about what happened that night, but then when Sebastian and Atif both talked to Mr. Big, they gave very accounts of what was going on with the family, where if they were active, if they were sleeping, as well as how they actually came into contact with the murder weapon, the baseball bat. It seems that to the jury, one of the biggest pieces of evidence is that confession tape. And on the defensive side, we want to know, was this a false confession? And a false confession is an admission to a crime along with narrative details of a crime that a person did not commit. According to the Innocence Project, almost 30% of people that they helped to exonerate confessed to the crime that they were convicted of within the last 10 years. The National Registry of Exonerations estimates that 27% of people confessed to murders that they didn't commit. One thing I wanted to point out is that everyone can say, I would never admit to a crime I didn't commit. Why would you ever do that? But Police have ways of making people say things that aren't true. And with Jimmy Miyoshi in this case, he was told, you will be charged, you will go to jail, your life is going to be ruined if you don't tell us what we want to hear, essentially. 81% of people with mental or intellectual disabilities confess to crimes they didn't commit when questioned. And Del and I have talked about this plenty of times, the deficiencies of police and mental illness. It's something we really hope to see change. Common reasons for false confessions include police mishandling of the case, aggressive interrogation tactics, and individual traits. Police can mishandle a case by having tunnel vision and focusing on an innocent party, which is something we brought up in the Julius Jones case. This can lead to the police using aggressive tactics, including police brutality when interrogating a suspect who is not admitting to something the police think they are guilty of. And again, people who are mentally ill or come from an abusive background are more likely to say what they think the police want to hear. In 20% of cases with people later exonerated by DNA, police forced confessions were the primary reason for a conviction. And like I said, it's partly because people think, why would you, I would never say I did something wrong, so why would you do it? Why would you lie? And it's not that simple. It's definitely not that simple. And there are three primary types of false confessions. The first is voluntary. This is a false confession given with little to no police pressure. Researchers state that the common reasons for this type of false confession 
is to gain notoriety, guilt for past actions, a desire to protect the real perpetrator, or a mental impairment. One example of this is John Carr, who confessed to killing John Bonet, despite there being no evidence of him ever having been in the same room as her. The second type is complacent. This type describes a false confession given to put an end to the questioning or to receive the anticipated benefits of confessing. This happens when suspects believe that the short-term reward for confessing outweighs the consequences of confessing. An example of this is the Central Park Five. They confessed after being told that the lengthy interrogation would come to an end if they provided information. The third type is persuaded. This type is when a person is convinced by police through the police's lies, giving details about the crimes, or making the suspect doubt their own memory. The police engage in tactics that cause a person to think they must have committed the crime despite not having any genuine recollection of it. An example of this type would be the Beatrice Six, who were convinced by the police psychologists that they had repressed memories of committing rape and murder. Police use a wide array of methods when interrogating suspects. Some range from questionable to outright unconstitutional. One technique in particular has led to numerous convictions in Canada, and that is the Mr. Big technique, or the Canadian technique which is a police interrogation used to elicit a confession from unknowing suspects. The way this works is that undercover cops befriend the suspects through companionship and gifts, which we saw with the undercover cops and Sebastian. They then have them commit less severe offenses like credit card scams and making deliveries. The suspects are paid for these tasks. The suspect is treated as an up-and-comer in a criminal organization. Eventually, they are introduced to Mr. Big himself, who is a skilled interrogator. Mr. Big then tries to get a confession. He uses a multitude of tactics such as saying that a person needs to confess to any prior crimes to be initiated fully into the organization, stating they know police have evidence and if the suspect confesses and becomes a recognized member, they can destroy the evidence or that the confession is needed to gain trust. So while this technique is legal in Canada, the practice is actually outlawed across the United States and is not used in many other places around the world. The Mr. Big tactic is looked down upon because it's seen as a form of entrapment where you are not only trying to catch a suspect committing a crime, you're actually setting up the circumstances for that crime to be committed. Other Mr. Big cases include Andy Rhodes, who is a Canadian man who was convicted of killing a backpacking German couple after a friend claimed that he was the killer six years after the crime. Hazlitt was also involved in this thing, and Rhodes has maintained his innocence for decades. Jason Dix was the target of a Mr. Big investigation also. He was charged for a double murder, and after being behind bars for two years without bail, the charges were dismissed. He sued the Royal Canadian Mountain Police and was awarded 765,000 Canadian dollars in damages. In 2014, the Canadian Supreme Court reconsidered the constitutionality of the technique and limited the admissibility of several confessions obtained by it, particularly for young or vulnerable suspects. So then the question becomes, is this an ethical way to gain a confession? I personally don't think it is. I do think that it is dubious to use a technique like this, but I'm thinking of it being used in really serious crimes and whether that having this technique would be a good thing. You know, if there's a hard to crack suspect, 
and there is some evidence that he committed the crime, but you want to make the case stronger. I think that this would be a good way to make the case stronger. You know, like you have his um, DNA, but you know that the lawyer can say that, well, the DNA was there when he came to the house two days ago. Well, you can use the Mr. Big tactic to say, well, it's not just that your DNA was found in the house. We also have your confession. I think that's a good point. I think I would feel differently if they did do that. I guess I just think it is unethical because I do see it as entrapment. You mentioned that and I I had entrapment in my notes. Entrapment question mark was in there. It does kind of seem like that to me. I don't know a ton about police practices and I know it varies state by state, country by country, but it kind of brings into question for me how much power do the police have and how much should they have? And to me, this is a little too much. Well, that's so true. And I know for the United States, the police have definitely broad powers when it comes to investigating crimes, especially violent crimes, where they can lie to you, (laughs) they can um, present false evidence, they can essentially do things as long as it's not unconstitutional. And the Constitution, it's pretty silent on police interrogations. So as long as they're not actively beating you, and they're not keeping a lawyer from you, the police can essentially do what they think they need in order to get a confession. That connects to the question of knowing that the police have all this power, is it okay to use these type of police tactics on young people? I would again say no. (laughs) Yeah, I honestly kind of think like anyone under the age of like 21 shouldn't. You can get life, but I think the possibility of parole should be allowed. Just because like I keep saying, your brain isn't fully functioned. You are an adult by, I guess, law standards, but it doesn't mean you're all there and you're fully mature. I mean, there's people like in their 20s, 30s that aren't mature. So I think the only thing with limiting responsibility to people who have turned 18 but not 25 yet is that it doesn't just work in the sense of you're not responsible for a crime. If we were to say that if you're under 21, we're not going to hold you completely legally accountable for your actions, we would also have to say that you can't consent to things. You can't sign contracts. You can't join the military. You can't do a lot of things because, you know, we can't just have a system where we're saying, well, the bad actions you get cover for, but you're able to, you know, live your life freely in other aspects. That's a good point. (laughs) I won't deny that. I did want to say too, with the Mr. Big question and if, you know, Atif and Sebastian were too young, I think it's kind of weird that they used it in this case. I don't know. It just, I shouldn't say it doesn't seem serious enough, but because three people were murdered, but I don't know. To me, it kind of seems like it might be better for like a drug operation or something. So yeah, when I was researching it, I saw that it was used mostly in those type of cases. And when it comes to Sebastian and Atif, it definitely, their age calls into question whether the police should have used those tactics. But like you're saying, it's just an age thing. You know, it's an age thing and not being rich enough thing. So once you turn 18, the police are really taking off the gloves and they are really going to use any taxes that they think is necessary in order to get what they want out of you, which in, you know, nine times out of 10 is a confession. So that wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Rafay family murders and whether or not Atif and Sebastian are guilty. 
make sure you click the subscribe button and leave a five-star review. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Judy and Dale signing off. Stay safe. <laughs>